Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm sorry I haven't been that prolific in recent times. Um, been doing my day job. Um, been a bit busy. But uh, I'm hoping to be a bit more a bit more um, consistent with, with putting these out in, in the coming year. Uh, my guest today is Kumi Naidu. Uh, Kumi is one of the most recognisable voices in campaigning today. Um, he was born and brought up in apartheid South Africa, um, cut his teeth on in his teens campaigning against the regime and activism which led him to moving in exile to, to the UK. He went back to South Africa um, where he became General Secretary of the Global Call to Action Against Poverty and General Secretary of Civicus. And during that period, I knew him when he was at, at Civicus, worked with him most when I was at uh, uh, Make Poverty History. He was the first African head of Greenpeace um, and served as his, at its international secretariat in the Netherlands as executive director. Um, but he is currently secretary general of Amnesty International. So um, he's, I suppose, as close you can get to campaigning royalty, if that's not a uh, contradiction in terms. Um, as you will hear, he's got a lot to say about different things about the state of campaigning in general. So I've taken the liberty on this fifth of my podcast to move away from the standard format, um, such that it is, uh, so, and allow Kumi to speak in a more wind-ranging way, which I think, uh, once you've heard him, you'll agree was, is, is a worthwhile departure. So, Here's the interview. Hello and uh, welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm here with Kumi Naidu, Secretary General of Amnesty International. We're here at the International Secretariat in London. So welcome, Kumi. Thank you very much, Steve. So, um, Kumi, I wanted to go back a bit in time and, and, and think back to your work on apartheid and your days as a, an activist in, in, uh, in South Africa when you were much younger. Um, and just to get you to reflect a bit on what you see as the similarities and differences with what's going on today in the world um, and the way that activism and campaigning have, have have come to be in, in the in the current uh, current world. Well, the first uh, actual protest or campaign I participated in was against the inequality in education, and uh, the first march I participated in. The slogan at the front of the march was "We want equality," meaning e- equality in education. But then the slogan got to the back of the march. The younger kids were chanting, we want a color TV, because that's how the Chinese whisper worked. Uh, and uh, therein lies my first lesson. And that is, uh, far too often, we have become very cautious in campaigning, where we expect people who are participating to be absolute specialists or absolutely on top of theory and conceptual knowledge and so on. I think one of the lessons I've learned is that it's important for people to make mistakes, learn from the mistakes quickly and move on. And for the young people, including some people I know, 
who was shouting at the back, we want a color TV, went on to become very uh, active resistors to the apartheid system. So the first lesson I would say is don't look for uh, high levels of knowledge or high levels of expertise, especially when we're creating, especially when we should be creating possibilities and avenues into participation for as large a number of people as possible. Because one of the key lessons, the second lessons from from the apartheid, uh, the struggle to end apartheid, would be that um, numbers matter, right? And being able to mobilize the largest constituency possible is critically important. I would say, in virtually every struggle that we have around the world. Because governments can legitimately say, right, especially when there have been, you know, half-decent elections. And let's face it, most of the countries in the world today, we might have elections, but we don't necessarily have democracy, right, uh, in the sense of the manipulation. I mean, we look at the United States today, and we see the contestation around elections in so many states that happen during the midterms. Mm-hmm. It's a good uh, example that... Uh, what we see is governments, including governments in long, so-called long-standing democracies, are actually making judgments about whether to respond to a million people on the streets to say, stop the war in Iraq. They look at it and they say, oh, this is significant, but actually it's not going to electorally affect me, so I can resist it. The third lesson I would say is, I, I, I would say that one of the biggest mistakes of activism, and I've made it myself, especially when I was younger, where activists project their consciousness on the people that they are seeking to organize, right? Meaning that they almost there's a high level of impatience when you are engaging with people who have different points of view. Uh, and if they don't arrive at your point in five minutes of conversation, mm. there is a real uh, sense of, Either you're stupid, you're backward, you, 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 to quote Hillary Clinton, uh, you are undesirable, uh, you know, which I think was a contributing factor that cost her the elections and so on. So I was informed by a slogan that came out of the Asia, which said, um, from the Philippine Rural Reconstruction Movement when I was quite young, about like 17, and it said, Go to the people, live with them, learn from them. Start with what they know, build on what they understand, such that when the struggle has been achieved, people should say, we have done it by ourselves. And so I think uh, that would be the third lesson I would draw sure. from the anti-apartheid struggle. Okay, well, that's that's um, very enlightening, but I, I suppose I... You know, when doing some of my work as a consultant, uh, you know, coming across um, sort of lots of different movements around the world, there seems to be now a struggle to even be allowed to speak out in some places or, you know, what's referred to as civil civil society space. And you were, I know you were um, at Civicus um, um, a few years ago, and and that was obviously a big focus of that organisation. So... Is that something, when you look back across your careers, do you think that's got acutely worse in recent times? Or are we just seeing sort of the latest manifestation of, of what's what's always been there, which is, as you say, governments ignoring people or wanting to ignore people uh, because it's convenient for them? And do you see this as a particularly dangerous time? This is a very dangerous time. 
we should probably go back to the fall of the Berlin Wall and look at that moment when even Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan was talking about a peace dividend, which many understood as the resources that were going into military expenditure and so on were going to education, housing, health, things that really matter to ordinary people. In reality, what we saw with the fall of the Berlin Wall is more countries having elections, but not necessarily a stronger democratic culture within uh, the countries that were, uh, for the first time or after a long hiatus, holding elections. So right now there are more than 80 countries around the world in the last five years alone that have made legislative and other uh, actions that they've taken to restrict the possibility of uh, civic resistance to certain of their policies. Now the three um, freedoms, if you want, that matter most for movements and for campaigning organizations, I would argue, is the freedom of uh, assembly, the right to protest, the freedom of expression, uh, having the ability to speak to the media, to say what you believe without uh, having um, any repercussions, and uh, and the freedom of association, which relates to just how you set up organizations and how you function, what are the restrictions on what you can function, and so on. And there is no doubt in my mind in the majority of countries, including in so-called long-standing democracies, including in the UK, if we look at some of the uh, positions being taken when you have uh, civic resistance, uh, you, you see the case of the protesters, uh, the Stansted uh, uh, group, for example, who are now being charged of terrorism. Uh, because they did a protest against uh, um, a activist, I mean, a, a repatriation of an Afghan refugee that was uh, deemed not to be justified. So things, I would say, are significantly, uh, you know, the optimism of that period when the Berlin Wall came down and where we are more than 20 years mm -hmm. later is a very sad situation to be. And in fact, it looks like many governments... I've come to the conclusion, so long as we have elections, however manipulated the elections, however few people vote in the elections, however the ruling incumbent political forces manipulate the media and give themselves an advantage, doesn't matter. You have elections, you can tick a box that says democracy. But I would conclude by saying that, you know, the real test of democracy, democracy should not be reduced to the singular a singular act of voting every four or five years. Democracy, because that's the represent, representative democracy, but the participatory democracy, if you don't have a democratic culture that allows citizens and the organizations they form to engage in policy to participate in between election periods, then I would argue you don't have meaningful democracy. And in terms of uh, the space for campaigning, uh, do you think that... The sort of the, the, that constriction in freedom that you talked about is that is that it's obviously a challenge for campaigners, but is it an insurmountable challenge, or is that something that um, you know campaigners can get around in creative ways, or you know what, what would be the response? What do you think this response should be from civil society to this trend? Well, I mean, in the DNA of most sort of campaigning movements and organisations, we almost don't accept that anything is impossible, right? So I would say, of course, we need to come up with a plan to mm. defend and again expand 
democratic space and civic space more generally. However, we would be extremely naive not to acknowledge that what is driving this current moment that we are in at the end of 2018 is the rise of fascism, uh, uh, the rise of demonization, uh, 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 the use of a us versus them mentality and so on in places that uh, that include countries with weaker democratic traditions as well as uh, countries with longer democratic traditions such as the United States. If we just take President Trump as an example, you know, he has attacked the media, he has uh, used xenophobia, he has used sexism and misogyny, he has used... Um, uh, attacking of public institutions, including institutions which uh, for democracy to work, to have a separation between the ju judiciary and the state, for example. Uh, and this has made the events of the last two years in particular uh, have made the challenge of shrinking democratic space, which was already a challenge for the last decade, has made it much worse. But how do we respond? I think we have to, uh, in a sense, uh, show the highest levels of moral courage right now uh, that campaigners have ever shown, in the sense that, you know, if history teaches us anything, that when humanity has faced a major injustice or a major challenge, those struggles only move forward when decent men and women say enough is enough and no more. I'm prepared to put my life on the line if necessary. I'm prepared to go to prison if necessary. And the message that I've started the job here at Amnesty International on is saying that if, we, if human rights is to succeed, we need to build a bigger, more bolder, and more inclusive movement. And by a more bolder movement, it is about us being saying, uh, comfortable to say that we are going to increase our appetite for more robust resistance, which is peaceful, but which does ensure that we take much higher levels of risk than which campaigners have taken in the past. And I would say particularly campaigners in the North, because folks in the South are, are taking much more repression on a daily basis. You know, if we take uh, for example, the figure from Global Witness, which says that every week, on average, four environmental activists get killed somewhere in the world, mostly in Latin America, in the Amazon, and Africa, and Asia. But uh, and, and if you look at it, how many environmental activists get killed in the Global North? Hopefully, as far as I know, uh, you know, there isn't a stat for that. So there is a distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say part of us being able to find a way forward on this and other issues of inequity within our movements is the start, the need for us to start to speak very honestly about the power differentials within movements, which is, I think, part of the solution of pushing back on the shrinking space because we are not willing to talk about uh, power differentials within our movements yeah. in ways that are helpful. Like, for example, you and me, Steve, right? Yeah. It's cheaper for Amnesty to, in, to, to employ you as the Secretary General of uh, Amnesty than to employ me because the amount of time it takes just in terms of applying for visas, right? I jokingly used to say when I was civicist, if I were to write an um, autobiography of my time at the civicist, it would be known as visas, effing visas. You know, uh, because, um, and, and by the way, 
I, I say this not just to make a tangential point, but to say that one of the implications of shrinking democratic space has been what you could call the curtailment of international civic mobility, meaning, uh, you know, virtually every international gathering that I'm at, right, especially those organized by civil society, but not exclusively. There are people from Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, the Caribbean, the Pacific, and so on, who are denied visas, right? Uh, And so, and, and for example, say, going back to the example of you being the Secretary General, Mm -hmm. if there was a crisis tomorrow in the majority of countries in the world and your team here said, Steve, we need the Secretary General of Amnesty to get to that point, you can jump on a plane two hours later and probably go because you don't need a visa to go. Mm -hmm. And so, so, however, our failure to talk about this, I mean, the fact that that reality exists is not Steve's fault or Kumi's fault. That's the reality of how power is operated and structural power is operated mm-hmm. in the world for a long time. But the failure to even talk about it, right, with the Namuns, we, we, we want to pretend we are all equal, mm. but actually in reality we're not. I, I, I just want to reflect on that and look at, I mean, we first met over during the Make Poverty History campaign and you were chair of GCAT, the Global Call to Action Against Poverty, as I remember it. <clears throat> now, so during, could you just say a bit about how you felt during that time in terms of the north-south power dynamics? And you know, obviously, Make Poverty History was a campaign that was started here in in the UK, but but then it, it sort of grew into a global sort of moment. I don't know, we'd call it a movement quite. But could you say whether you think that those sorts of dynamics in campaigning have got any better? In other words, it is this, the idea of southern leadership taking your cue from, you know, as you said, movements rooted in the south or anywhere. Um, has that become more of a, a, you know, more of a driving force in in NGOs, in NGO campaigning, or in in, in campaigning? Generally? It has become more of a issue to be dealt with rather than a driving force. Yeah. Okay. I think it has been dealt with a little bit uh, technocratically in the sense that you think, oh, okay, uh, we need to have a secretary general or the head of the organization from the Global South. Plonking a Kuminaidu on the top of uh, any uh, international NGO, for example, uh, without the political appetite to change our movements so that they are genuinely equitable, genuinely north-south balance and so on is another whole different uh, proposition. So I would say yes, there have been moves. Yes, you know some significant moves, but still, the power of the global north in our movements is still strong, and is still um, defining of the culture of global movements. Mm-hmm. I think what we are seeing on national and regional movements. Uh, I mean, how many movements do you know of that actually started global movements that started in the global south? I can count them with one hand. Yeah. Right. Jubilee South Mm -hmm. would be one of them. And Jubilee South was a response to the Jubilee campaign, which was seen as far too northern-oriented. So in a sense, even Jubilee South, you can't say it organically, you know, started on its own. So, uh, but a quick reflection on Make Poverty History and that period, right? So, you know, um, it was UK NGOs in particular, the big brand name ones, that really pushed for the setting up of the 
of GCAP. Mm-hmm. They did it out of a large level of their own organizational self-interest, which was that the, that year, 2005, the UK had the G8 presidency and the EU presidency. And the G8 meeting was in Glen Eagles, as people remember, and mm. so on. And UK NGOs felt, oh, wow, we have an opportunity here to really push agenda, which was a good reading. And to give them legitimacy to do that well, they needed a global movement behind them, right? And essentially, people were corralled throughout the the global south. And so, you know, Oxfam and uh, the other dominant NGOs got their quote-unquote partners in the global south to be part of the campaign and gave them grants and so on. And then once 2005 was ending, all the big NGOs here wanted to kill Make Poverty History in the UK. One uh, reason for that is that Make Poverty History's brand visibility had surpassed those of the individual um, logos, Mm. dominant logos, right? But I was in those debates because for the rest of the world, I mean, people were saying, you cannot be serious. You cannot tell us that you corralled us and pushed us to get involved in this movement and then you just say we're pulling the plug, we're not going to be part of it, and we're going to minimize our involvement. That, And by the way, just to be clear, in the UK, smaller campaigning groups right, uh, who were part of Make Poverty History did not share the view of the big uh, logos, right? Yeah. In the sense that they wanted, they wanted to carry they on. Wanted to carry on yeah. Just as everybody in the Global South wanted, wanted Make Poverty yeah. History to carry on. So therein lies another lesson. right? And that is we have become in. I think that we must make a distinction between movements, which are more broader based, and and international NGOs, who sometimes are the leaders of movements or the instigators or the catalyzers of movements. Right? You know, I feel in some ways guilty because I was part of one of those big brands and and I was part of the decision to wind it up, which we made that decision at the beginning. But I do I do think that was the wrong decision actually, and I do think in a way we let down so many campaigners around the UK and, and around the world when we did it. But but it was almost like there wasn't a choice for us. You know, we had it had been predetermined and decided. And, I... Well, I, 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 I don't want to say specific names, but it was, you know, it was the leaders of those organisations that said, look, we'll do this for a year, but we're not. There's yeah, no but way. The, but that, no was way never, that was never declared no. to folks in the South um, in advance. Uh, certainly, you know, I fought hard to encourage it to continue. And then there was like a low-key yeah. way in which the UK was involved. Uh, of course, it meant that lots of national coalitions in the Global South who put a lot of effort, put a lot of voluntary time, hoped for some sort of resourcing from UK groups, for mm-hmm. example, which never really flowed uh, on any substantial basis subsequently. Mm-hmm. But amazingly, uh, I just read yesterday that uh, 60 Sorry, 85 countries still have GCAP coalitions wow. that are functioning. 11,000 organizations, uh, CSOs, are still part of the GCAP network. Uh, they've just launched a new website, you know, kind of. Yeah. So, so but, 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 but what can we learn from that? That was, I think, another key problem with international NGOs, mm-hmm. and that is uh, versus movements more broadly, and that is international NGOs have actually... Uh, we need to ask the question now whether we've become too corporatist in our mentality. 
too obsessed by brand, too obsessed by growth, too obsessed by uh, visibility and media recognition mm-hmm. and, and so on. And, and, and so I think the only justification I could have seen in that decision when it was happening, mm-hmm. that it was dominant organizations were putting their organizational self-interest first, and when I say putting the organizational self-interest, it was not the vision and mission of the organizations, but certain conventional indicators by which, uh, in a heavily corporatized world, we measure success. We're going to take a little break there, um, but we'll hear more from Kumi um, in a few moments. Okay, we're back now with Kumi Naidu uh, at Amnesty. Um, we've been talking a bit about uh, the role of large NGOs, international NGOs, in in terms of their campaigning and global campaigning. And one question I wanted to ask was, um, do you think that the the new forms of activism that have grown up, uh, you know, when, whether those are sort of mostly online activism or sort of lighter forms of more reactive activism, um, more direct action. There are various sort of different different types of campaigning that have sort of become or seem to be more effective now. And then you still have these big NGOs doing campaigning. I'd just like to get your reflections on whether the, the big NGOs can really sort of make a difference in the way that they used to do or that, that the narrative suggests that they used to do. Or are they kind of dinosaurs and moving too slowly, too bureaucratic? So ten years, more than 10 years ago, a book came out of the United States called Spider and the Starfish, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. Uh, why Spider? Uh, spider is hierarchically structured. You chop its head, it dies. Starfish, you chop off one of its arms, it grows into another starfish. And, and, and this was used as uh, Spider being centralized and uh, Starfish being decentralized. The reality is that... Uh, all the international NGOs today are far too bureaucratized to become completely spider, completely decentralized. However, there is a hybrid that we should be seeking for to take the best from centralization and the best from decentralization. The reality that most international NGOs have had to deal with in the last, um, I would say, eight years in particular with the start of the Arab resistance authoritarian rule in Tunisia, uh, what we have is... Um, a very different uh, sorts of energies. And if we look at some of, whether it was the Arab resistance, whether it was uh, Occupy, Indignados, uh, Enough is Enough in Nigeria, Fees Must Fall in South Africa, and so on, ask yourself, which international NGO really contributed to any of those struggles, right? At the most, they would have, at, at best, they contributed very marginally. So this was very social media-driven activism, but more than the tools that were used for this kind of campaigning, it was also the ideology behind it. People see the big logos, right, as part of the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know in Brazil, for example, 
when there was the big transportation protests and a few amnesty sorry greenpeace volunteers went with uh, the slow you know with the greenpeace t-shirts they got attacked at the at, at those marches they right. said ah you all are part of the system because mm. you are too big and too bureaucratic and and so on so there is the possibility right now for international ngos who actually drove a lot of the development whether it's amnesty on human rights with greenpeace on um, environment action aid oxfam and so on and poverty they played critical roles in terms of in a very different world with very dim- limited uh, with a different kind of restraints during the cold war on mobilization and so on and the challenge now for um, international ngos is can we change sufficiently to be fit for purpose yeah. right and i on the positive side whether it's amnesty or whether it's greenpeace or any of the other movements they are all committed to changing to be fit for purpose however the challenge is if we are saying to corporations and governments we've got 12 years according to the scientists to get emissions to peak and stop coming mm-hmm. down if we are to prevent irreversible catastrophic runaway climate change and we are saying to governments and business you need to make big changes you know if we say for example you need to move to an economy that's driven by clean green renewable energy rather than brown dirty fossil fuel uh, based energy we're not asking people to go take a walk in the park we're asking them to make massive changes it has huge implications on staff uh, on jobs and and so on we cannot on the one hand be making those demands publicly and when we look at what we need to do to change to be fit for purpose we are only prepared to engage in slow incremental change but we expect the people that we're campaigning against to actually make substantive systemic big changes fast do you have any specific examples that you're thinking about or that incremental you know yeah i would say go look at the strategic plans of every international ngo right mm-hmm. and uh, and look at the timelines they put for by when they want to achieve what yeah. and then you ask yourself does the timeline reflect the what i would call the analytical urgency mm-hmm. you know in the sense that our analysis tells us we are running out of time some people say we might be out of time already uh, given the climate realities we are facing uh, and and then you will see that there's an inconsistency between the urgency in which we campaign and mm-hmm. ask for changes in business and government and we don't reflect sufficiently that urgency to change ourselves to be able to deliver what uh, our supporters actually want us to deliver well uh, perhaps a uh, smaller point but nonetheless i think an important one that 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 strikes me about um, the the big ngos in particular we don't want to talk too much about them but the way that they approach campaigning seems to be increasingly, as you, as you acknowledged, I think, sort of professionalised. Is it, I mean, is it becoming too professionalised that, you know, when you meet sort of the young campaigners and they're very, they're very sort of professional, you know, um, uh, driven, but not necessarily, I don't know, as passionate or as creative as, as, as perhaps 
maybe 20 years ago. That, that's my reflection. So, And also, I, I don't think that's their fault in a sense. It's the system they're coming into, big NGOs, bureaucracy. You know, in, in a, as a consultant, I might be part of the problem, you know, constant sort of evaluation of everything, uh, strategies, plans, meetings, you know, all of that sort of, you know, weighing down on you as a campaigner. Um, is it possible to break free of some of that, do you think? Well, you know, there's a proverb, uh, uh, there's a quotation that is incorrectly attributed to Albert Einstein. It says, not everything that counts can be measured and not everything that can be measured counts. And to a large extent, uh, the obsession uh, and the pressures that international NGOs have been put under to show output and outcomes and targets being met and so on uh, as actually uh, had an impact where we have defined professionalism in a particular sort of way. I personally do not have a problem between professionalism and high-quality campaigning. But it all depends on what you mean by professionalism. Does professionalism mean you need to have a degree and um, you know certain things ticked off that you've achieved in equivalent organizations? Because, like for example, you know if you look at how many people, say from the global south, that have worked in equivalent organizations, you're not going to find, uh, you know, like uh, somebody said to me uh, when they were recruiting for for another international NGO, said, you know what? It's so sad. All the international NGOs are desperate to get people from the global south to lead it, but we actually are dealing with the tiniest pool of people mm -hmm. because people just not have had that same organizational exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what I think is not so much that we should debunk professionalism and throw away professionalism. We need to redefine what high quality. I rather use the word high quality, impactful, meaningful. Uh, transformative campaigning looks like. Mm -hmm. We want people who... who and, and I would argue that if you even use the conventional definition of professionalism, which is good analysis, good skills, good delivery, good meeting of targets or whatever, I think our analysis is, is flawed. Right? I think our analysis uh, has been... You know, I would describe the collective output of... Uh, civil society organizations right now as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as humanity is sinking, right? Uh, you know, we, we accuse governments and business of suffering from cognitive dissonance, you know, not willing to face up to reality. And I would sadly say that that disease of cognitive dissonance also finds a lot of currency in... Um, in our movements, in our in INGOs in particular, and, and other uh, parts. So, 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 is there a place for professionalism? If by professionalism you mean getting better, getting smarter, getting more impactful, getting more creative, getting more innovative, and so on, then I'm all for. Mm. But that's not how, in reality, it is playing itself out. It it is still too much technocratic in mm. the way that we define what equals professionalism. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to also ask you, Kumi, about um, just switching tack now. Um, uh, current trends, you know, um, in, in the wider world of, of politics and the way that people identify now, we can call it identity politics, so identi identify with 
specific groups or identify themselves as part of a specific group. And the challenge that that has to things like human rights, uh, to things like uh, understanding, you know, uh, societal kind of rights or societal impact. Do you feel that um, it's more difficult now to mobilise people, you know, in a Trump era, in in an era of Brexit, in an era of, you know, the rise of the right the rise of identity politics is how much of a challenge is that and i know that's a big question <laughs> for you as uh, coming into this job but it seems fundamental um you know or or is that just a moment we're having do you think globally well one hopes it's just a moment but we can't take that for guarantee because we are seeing trends the election of bolsonaro in brazil is extremely significant Bolsonaro's election, now hearing that there was also manipulation from, I don't know, a thousand bots from operating out of the US and Russia that influenced that election and so on. But what I would say is that the impact of this from a campaigning, movement-building point of view is a bit more ambiguous because if we look at the US, we've had the highest levels of mobilization of women since Trump's election. We've had really positive shifts in public opinion on climate change uh, even after Trump declared that they were pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, We are seeing in um, Philippines, in India, in um, a range of different places around the world as repression. So so therefore I say it's, it's not a linear output, right? So on the one hand, in a short-term basis, it is having huge negative impacts Mm. on... So if I just look at Amnesty, there's a pressure to shut us down and and our bank accounts have been frozen, for example, in India. In uh, Bangkok, in Thailand, our regional office, Southeast Asia office, is under threat of... uh, In fact, they've denied us a license, so we have to move out of there. Uh, I can go country by country mm. and tell you the difficulties we are having. And same with other um, parts of civil society facing major closing. So all of that is negative. Mm-hmm. However, I refuse to accept that, you know, I, I'm very influenced by the Chinese sort of philosophy of, uh, you know, where they talk about Wai Chi, it's, which is the same word and symbol for crisis is also the same one for opportunity, right? And in every crisis, there is huge opportunity. If we are creative, we are courageous in our analysis and our actions, we can turn it. And that's what the women's movement has done around Trump. That's what the climate movement has done around, uh, you know, the rise of of, of, um, denialism again, even though it's still very marginal on climate. Uh, so I think this moment uh, is one where if we don't change it, if we don't change the trajectory we're on, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that the plans that I know of, the visible expressions of protests against this sort of veering towards fascism... Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic Mm. we can turn 
the crisis of this demonization trend into mm. something that broadens our movements. But I would very quickly say it's going to be exceptionally difficult and it cannot be business as usual. Just as we say to government and business, you cannot operate with business usual in a climate-constrained world and a world where inequality is in the rise and so on. We ourselves in our world need to say it cannot be activism as usual mm. and we should remind ourselves of what Einstein once said when he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting to get different results and to a large extent every international NGO every campaigning organization should ask themselves how different are you operating today in 2018 than you were operating 10 years ago and if you're operating substantially in the same way there's a good chance that you're not ab ab uh, adapting to a very fluid, fast-changing external environment that is not clear, that has lots of uncertainty in it, and that calls on you to take higher levels of risk. But failure to take that risk is a bigger risk than not taking risk mm. at all. Just on a personal note, how, how you know, you, you looking back at your career, you know, uh, you know, the apartheid ended, as you said, you described the Berlin Wall falling. You know, there's there's been a sort of certain progression over the last um, over the last sort of twenty thirty years in, in a in a broadly you might say in a broadly positive direction. You know, even the the acceptance of that climate change is happening and wanting to do something about it. But does it, it must feel to you a bit like the last few years things have gone backwards? Do you, how do you personally sort of keep going with your energy and your as your, your positivity in the in that climate? It's not easy. It's, it's, it's very tough. Uh, let me just share on a personal note, right? You know, um, you will remember uh, Netanet and uh, yes. uh, Demisi and um, Daniel Bakele, yeah. who was with Action Aid. Both of them spent time in prison in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, unjustly held for almost three years. Mm -hmm. And I had a situation where I was, uh, I had to cancel Christmas with my daughter because I got, we thought they were going to be acquitted and then they were convicted and we had to stay for the sentencing. And uh, when I saw my daughter, she sort of like, she'll deny it today, but she sort of was saying to me, Dad, you're really not good at your job, are you? Uh, because why did it take like two years or three years to get these guys out? You've been running up and down to Ethiopia um, and, and on everything that you've been working on since you were 15 things don't seem to be getting much better in fact are getting much worse yeah and and i think that that's you know the that conversation stayed with me a long time and stays mm -hmm. with me today because we have to not be arrogant we have to be humble if we are failing we must say we are failing if we are not winning sufficiently we must say we are not winning because there's no point winning battles and losing the overall war for justice you know what i mean uh, every month i can point at amnesty or when i was at greenpeace we could count two or three victories, getting a company to change, getting a government to change this policy or mm -hmm. this practice. But the question is, do those individual victories add up to the, sus uh, the structural and systemic change that we need to see in terms of our economy, in terms of how we think about uh, gender, how we think about uh, doing right by indigenous peoples who have had the worst uh, um, treatment in terms of power 
historically and so on. So, um, but but also, you see, what I advise people is you have to look for your own um, tools of resilience, right? So, for so, so you know, what can keep people resilient? Firstly, we have to take a posture that activism is great, activism is fun, activism is gives us a sense of identity, gives us a sense of purpose, gives our life a sense of meaning. You, you cannot go into a thing, oh my God, I have to plod through all these things. If you have that mentality, uh, rather choose a role for yourself which mm. does not need to interact with many other people. Do something cyber activism. Don't bring that negativity into movements. You have to come in with honest analysis. But I'm not saying you you... you Honest analysis, but with a positive mindset. Yeah. Mm. But to have that positive mindset, you have to, you know, you have to. Sometimes I know just because I ask this question because it's not as if I don't struggle. I struggle with this greatly, right? I'm a human being like anybody else, and and there are days that I'm almost on the verge mm. of tears when I when I'm looking at certain briefing documents and so on. So you know, sometimes it's something that you read. Sometimes it's your faith. Sometimes it's your um, witnessing something that was so horrific, right? I mean, my commitment and passion and so on took a um, big leap forward when I was in Raqqa, Syria last month. I mean, what I saw in Raqqa and what I see as the hypocrisy of the big political powers in the world um, and how they are playing big politics in a in, in, in a space that is as much of their making as it's of anybody else's making. Uh, you know, kind of seeing that and speaking to people whose entire families got wiped out by US-led bombings, uh, you know, and so on, really gives me, and, and, and speaking to those survivors, uh, you know, mm. like Muhammad and Sajid, who lost virtually their entire families, virtually all the children, mothers, fathers, and so on, while they were helping people in neighboring streets uh, who had already been bombed. And by the time they got back, the entire families were wiped out. And and so when I walk away, so when I hit my low points, I'm thinking right now of Muhammad and Sajid. I'm saying, what right do I have to be disillusioned? What right do I have to be mm. down? These folks have lost their entire families, right? So... I think what we need is to have a, you know, what helps me is is always comparing what struggles I'm personally having to deal with in the role that I'm trying to play versus other people who are playing different roles or people who have not even chosen to play roles but still as civilians are killed and attacked and so on. The last thing I would say is that, you know, you, I encourage people to find something very personal in their own lives that helps them with keeping their sense of morale up. And for me, it was, uh, for me, I've said this story many times publicly. When I was 22 years old, I was fleeing South Africa into exile, and my best friend then, Lenny Naidu, asked me a question. He said, Kumi, what is the biggest contribution you can make to the cause of humanity? And I said, giving your life. And he said, you mean going, getting shot and killed and becoming a martyr? I said, I guess so. Uh, he said, no, that's the wrong answer. He said, it's not giving your life, but giving the rest of your life. We were tw I was 22 years old at that time. My friend Lenny was way ahead of all of us. He was the first environmentalist uh, 
amongst us. He was uh, jokingly say, I think at that time he was one of like only a thousand voluntary vegetarians on the entire African continent. <laughs> a very special guy ahead of his time. So you would always say these philosophical things. So we hugged each other, we shed a couple of tears, and we flee in different directions. And two years later, I get the news that my friend Lenny and three young women from my home city, Durban, were brutally murdered by the apartheid regime. There were so many bullets in the bodies, their parents couldn't even recognize them. Uh, so I had to think about this distinction between giving your life. Obviously, when I heard the news, I was in exile at Oxford University then. Uh, I got the news that... I received the news and I thought, oh my God. You know, I was like finished. Like I couldn't operate for like months. But I kept thinking about the distinction he made between giving your life versus giving the rest of your life. And it's a really, really powerful distinction. Mm. I mean, say if Mugabe was killed in 1982, two years after he became prime minister, history would have recorded him on the very positive side. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but 30 plus years later, yeah. he's become a dictator. So he didn't have the tenacity and the ethics and the um, and the decency to stay true to those values to the end of their lives. I mean, yeah, the amnesty is very interesting, what I'm finding. Uh, you know, one of the first things that I had to do was address the whole question of Aung San Suu Kyi, who mm. is, she got the highest honor that amnesty offers, which Mandela got, which is a, a ambassador of conscience. And it was a very painful kind of process, but I, you know, Amnesty withdrew the, that award two weeks ago because it had become completely untenable. So while, mm. so, so what Lenny was saying in making the distinction is that the struggle for justice is a marathon and not a sprint, right? And those of us who've had the benefit of education, knowledge, exposure, should understand the biggest contribution we can make is staying true to those values and mm -hmm. continuing to push until those injustices have been uh, eradicated. So for me, and by the way, I hit my low points virtually every day, right? Because I'm dealing with a lot of extremely horrible things that I'm hearing and seeing and so on. And I have to go back to that personal, I, I go back and think, okay, um, this is about giving the rest of your life and there's going to be uh, knocks around the way. And the other thing I would say is, you know, the struggle for justice is not a popularity contest, right? If people come into the fight for justice thinking that, okay, this is the way I'm going to be liked and I'm going to be celebrated and so on, I would say, you know, rather go into sport or music or, uh, you know, acting or something, that's much easier to get you know, popularity. Yes. Uh, this Because basically the struggle for justice is about going against the status quo, right? And I want to just, I'm sorry I'm speaking a bit longer, but I just want to, I want to quickly share a wisdom that has influenced my life. The second, uh, because, you know, I said, you know, theoretical frames can also help you yes. deal with the question of when your morale goes low. And the most powerful thing that I have found for the last four years I've been using it and it's kept my sanity going is a quotation from Martin Luther King. Speaking in 1965 when I was about probably five months old, he said, My friends, as I come to the end of my speech, I want to note that in the field of modern child psychology, there's a very dominant term called maladjusted. Now, all of us want to be well-adjusted and not suffer from schizophrenia or other mental illnesses. But my friends, I say to you, there are certain things in our world that are so unjust and immoral 
that good, decent people should refuse to be well adjusted to. Then he went on to say, I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry, I never intend to adjust myself to racial discrimination. And importantly, he said, I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few when millions of God's children are smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in an affluent society. So he was talking here about the U.S. in the mid-60s. Mm. If that was valid, then it's a thousand times more valid in the U.S. today, and it's valid throughout the world. And then he goes on to say, I now call upon decent men and women around the world to come together to set up a new international organization to be known as the International Association for Creative Maladjustment. Okay? So, so I am very self-consciously a creatively maladjusted person, and I'm encouraging people to be creatively maladjusted. What does it say about us as a species that we have adapted to the levels of inequality that we, whether you're in the progressive side or the reactive side or the reactionary side or the right-wing side or the left-wing side, we've all adjusted to, we might theoretically argue against inequality, mm. but we've embraced it in our lifestyles and so on. So we have to um, address ourselves and ask ourselves, like for example, if you take the nuclear debate, you know, everybody, the majority of people you surveyed in the world today and asked them, do you think North Korea should build a bomb or not? They would say no. Then you said, do you think that they should disarm as the U.S. is saying they should do? People, most people probably say yes. And then if you then ask the question, well, how is it that the countries that are asking them to disarm, the U.S. and the nuclear building powers, they themselves are not talking about disarmament. They're actually talking about even... Uh, improving the nuclear technologies. Why did we? Why do we adjust to this? Right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of. Oh, for example, for the UK, and let me put this challenge to the UK progressive community or the civil society community. I have not heard one person in 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 in, in the British uh, progressive movement, the civil society movement, whatever you want to call it. I have not had one person say to me, "You know, Kumi, I feel embarrassed that the Britain as a veto." at the Security Council, mm -hmm. right? Why? I mean, the five veto-wielding nations, which were decided at 1945, was determined on the fact, whether you're on the right side of the... Uh, who won the Second World War, and was also determined by who controlled large amounts of people. So if you use a democratic lens of saying who should, if at all anybody should have a veto power at the Security Council, who should have it? Why should the UK and Britain, uh, sorry, UK and France hold the veto today? In 1945, they could have made a perverse argument saying, well, we are colonial hegemons controlling large amounts of the world's population, yeah. and on the basis of that, on size, we have so many people under our jurisdiction. Clearly, the main criteria of the permanent, uh, having a permanent seat at the Security Council is whether you're the wielder of economic, uh, nuclear weapons. But if you use that Ooh. definition, Israel, India, <laughs> Pakistan, and also... So, so what I'm saying is that we have adjusted, even in movements that are seeking justice, mm -hmm. to abnormalities that we shouldn't. And the way I survive on a day-to-day -day basis is finding that right balance between living in the real world, meaning fighting on the basis of what current reality allows you, but not allowing myself to be restricted by what people say is this is the only realistic thing you can achieve.
right? Because if we think we are going to secure this planet for current and future generations by simply rearranging the deck chairs, we are telling ourselves a lie. We are telling the people we campaign with the lie. We need a fundamental change in our economic system, into how we approach sustainability and so on. And what's on the table right now doesn't get us anywhere near where we need to be. Well, Kumi, um, thank you so much for your for your time today. I'll let you get back to your marathon. But uh, it's been a, it's been a, a, pr- a pleasure to hear from you, and I uh, appreciate you appreciate your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.